This is a great episode. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Please subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes. Uh, check out our archives. I have now about 33 conversations with big foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries that I think you will surely enjoy. And subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And of course, you can find every episode on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversation with Ruth Messenger. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We're an organization that is motivated by essential Jewish values, and we work to realize human rights and end poverty in the non-Jewish developing world. Uh, And how do you do that? Ah, good question. So we do that in two fundamental and interconnected ways. We are a grant-making organization. So in 19 countries, we currently have about 500, 530 grassroots organizations and their strategic allies. They work, as I said, in 19 countries on three critical thematic areas. We can come back to that in a minute. But we make grants to those organizations. Some are very small. Some have grown. Some are strategic allies of theirs um, that, that help them to do the work. But we make grants. We oversee those grants. We do thoughtful monitoring and evaluation in conjunction with the grantee. That's a picture very briefly of our international work, although I'd love to give you some live examples yeah, of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, so what does this look like in practice? Okay, so um, let's talk about what it looks like in practice, and then I'd like to come back and tell you about our national advocacy work as well. So in practice, an example, most recently I was in Oaxaca in Mexico, where we're working with farmer organizations that are fighting to hold on to title to their land against their own government, which is coming and announcing that it is now in control of land that farmers and their families have been farming for generations. This is happening all over the world. Land is being taken. It's actually called land grabbing by the academicians. Land is being taken by governments for mining, for oil drilling, for leasing to multinational organizations for them to do their own farming or their own growing of a key product. 
And it is, of course, undermining the poorest people, often indigenous people in these countries, whose only way of life and sustenance is by farming. So we work with those organizations to help them organize and mobilize, to help them negotiate right to their own land that looks different in different countries. We've won some victories. That's one example. I'll give you two more. We work extensively in the area of sexual health and reproductive rights, which includes a great deal of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender human rights work. But we are right now focused on working with organizations that are doing what they can to rescue girls and women from um, situations of gross abuse, gender-based violence, and planning for more equitable futures. So one other example, which is on our website, um, AJWS.org, is the story of Teresa in Nicaragua, who um, was helped by one of our grantee organizations to escape and a husband who was not only abusive to her, but was sexually abusing his daughters. And with the help of our grantee organization, she was able to successfully take the abuser to court have him end up in jail, and be able to transfer title to their farmland from him to her so that she could stay on the farm. And that's the second example. So can I, can um, I just maybe and, uh, interrupt you and, and go right ahead. Uh, ask you, so, you know, there's like a, a long history of um, Christian, for example, uh, aid work in, in the developing world. As far as I'm aware, AJWS is one of the only, probably maybe the only Jew, uh, Jewish-affiliated development organization. Do you ever sort of run into situations where you're working with a grantee uh, and this is probably you're, you're the first Jewish person they've ever seen in their life or, or even heard of and, and so there are like these expectations built up of what a Jewish person is and then they um, you know meet someone face to face and sort of their world is, is uh, kind of shattered in a way? Well, I'm not sure their world is shattered, but yes, we because of where we work, by which I mean not only that we work in 19 countries in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, but we work very often in the middle of urban slums or in rural, in rural areas with indigenous people. We are regularly working with people who have never met a Jew and occasionally have never actually heard about Jews or I want to say heard about Jews as a religious organization. Actually, most, uh, or faith, the most common misunderstanding that we get is that people say, wait a minute, how can you be American Jewish World Service? We thought all Jews lived in Israel. So that's just an interesting perception. But I don't, I guess I would take issue with, I don't think people's worlds are shattered. I think where we work and because of how we work, to be quite honest, Mark, people are, like, fascinated to meet a group that they may not have known anything or known much about. They, through us, they come to see Jews as a people totally committed to social justice. We have a very good reputation on the ground because, according to what we think is both good international development work and Jewish work, we don't tell people what to do. We ask them how we can help them 
with their fights to protect women and girls, with their current struggle against the Ebola virus, with their determination to hold on to their land, and we work collaboratively with them, which frankly gets more done, gets us to be seen as like really a thoughtful and caring funder, and is very, very good for the way Jews are being seen in the world in the communities where we work. And is, is sort of the latter kind of central to the mission of AWJS or just sort of an ancillary benefit? You know, you're doing good, good work. You have the name Jewish in your name. So people uh, get a good impression of, you know, what Jews are all about. It's, it's not central to our work. Central to our work is helping, is being the Jewish organization, and you were right, we are the Jewish organization, um, whose focus is on expanding human rights for all people um, wherever they live in the world. And that's what we do. And, and finally, you're about to say advocacy is a big part of your work as well. And, and Yeah, so one of... Right, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, please, go ahead. I, I, I came, okay. I think, to know you through your advocacy work uh, in the mid-2000s during the uh, Darfur, the Save Darfur movement, of which I know exactly. you were uh, one of the you know, pioneering members. Okay, well, thank you for that compliment. I do think it's true. Um, so we are not, we are unusual among international development organizations, whether faith-based or secular, not unique, but unusual in that we do both grassroots grant making on the ground through our in-country consultants, and we do U.S.-based advocacy on issues that matter to our grantees. There are some organizations that do one very well and some that do the other very well. There are only a few that do both. But what we do is we pick an issue. You're absolutely right. Ending the genocide in Darfur was, for many years, our premier issue. But we pick an issue that has some traction in Washington, where there are legislative changes to be made that if they were made, legislative or budgetary changes, would help millions of people, not just the people that we have grant agreements with. Um, but the issue has to have some traction in Washington. It has to matter to our grantees. And it has to be an issue that we think we can mobilize and organize around. Right now, we are particularly focused on getting the Congress of the United States to pass the International Violence Against Women Act, to make attention to the problems of gender-based violence, the problems of um, forced early marriage, which is a form of violence, um, to those issues need to be part of the United States dialogue with every country with which we interact, with which we negotiate bilateral agreements, we want the United States to be known in the world as caring enough about the rights of women and girls to be free of violence that it gets raised in the discussions that our country has with other countries. And what? Uh, and, and so, can you describe what this act is? Because I know it's it's distinct from CEDAW, uh, which is a treaty yes, uh, right. that the U.S. has not yet ratified. So, what what specifically that's, is this, does this act stipulate that you're trying that's to? That's right. This get is passed? a. This is a this is a, I'm sorry, the International Violence Against Women Act would essentially ratify and codify what is an existing but not legislatively protected office in the State Department concerned with women's issues. It would require the State Department to put these, to use that office, to continue that office, to continue the existing funding for that office. It has no new fiscal implications. 
but it would require that that office just look at what is the rate of gender-based violence in country X before we negotiate a trade agreement with them. What is the the problem, for example, very very known to you and all of your listeners. What is the what are the causes of the ex, of the explosion in the reporting of problems of um, rape in India? And are those new rapes? Are they just being newly reported? What should the United States be doing in its expansive negotiations with India to address those issues? And, so and just, I think, has, to give uh, some readers some background, you're referring to the Office of Global Women's Affairs, right, that Hillary Clinton created and put Malayne Verveer uh, as the, the head of uh, in the first Obama administration. That's correct. It's now run by Ambassador Catherine Russell. Um, and we have a working relationship with Ambassador Russell, um, but that's exactly what it would do. It would codify that work, and it would expand on what that office has been able to do already. Um, the, so the, the, it work in the United States, let me just say, involves, because this is one of the questions, so it involves our reaching out to Jewish communities and to allies in this work. There are many faith-based, human rights, secular organizations that are pushing for the passage of the International Violence Against Women Act. It is embarrassing that our Congress is not willing to automatically pass such an act. But what we're doing is taking this message to Jewish communities, congregations, Hillel's, through our website. People can get involved. People can sign a petition. It's not limited to Jews. As I said, there are many other organizations working on this issue. But that's our current legislative goal is to increase the bipartisan sponsorship of the act and then see it passed. And uh, do, you, do you have any prospect that this would get passed in, in the current legislative session? Or is it that a, a tall order, I would imagine? I'd say that's a tall order. I think we have a Congress right now that seems relatively disinclined to pass most things. But I'm very excited by the fact that among uh, with the work of our action teams around the country in various cities and various key congressional districts, um, with our capacity, which keeps growing, I'm happy to say, to mobilize rabbis, rabbinical students, key opinion leaders in the Jewish community, we're getting more people working on this issue, and they, in turn, are getting more meetings with members of Congress. Last May, we brought about 150 supporters of American Jewish World Service to Washington for a two-and-a-half-day policy summit that was focused on this issue. And those people, during those two-and-a-half days, had 88 meetings on the Hill, some of which are paying off with new sponsors, including new Republican sponsors. Um, so I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit uh, and uh, talk about you and, and your background. Now, did you grow up in a particularly religious or, or observant household? Um, I think everyone answers that question in their own way. I grew up in a, in a household that was denominationally conservative um, uh, and politically progressive, that was concerned about the general message that Jews were obligated to work for justice, not only for Jews, but for other people. And, and you grew up in New York, I take it, you know, lifelong New Yorker? I grew, up, I grew up in New York City. I am um, the first bat mitzvah at the Park Avenue Synagogue. That was about 130 years ago, but <laughs> I was the first. Uh, and, and so you grew up in, in the, was it the Upper East Side, Park Avenue? 
Park Avenue is on the east side, but I grew up on the west side. I'm a lifelong west sider. Okay. I grew um, up on the west side. I raised my children on the west side. I now live on the west side. And uh, how deep uh, do your roots to New York go? Um, I am an unusual category of person in the Jewish community because my grandparents, and this goes back a ways, were born in the U.S. or came here young and actually on both sides of my family settled in Manhattan. That is unusual. Yes, it is very uh, unusual. Mine are, are Montrealers, come via Montreal to the United States, but uh, it was my grandparents' generation, which is, I think is probably a little right. more typical. Um, 33, and, and I, I think you are a, a bit older. Um, so, I'm, I'm 73. So 73. My, my, grandparents, my grandparents were here. Um, so my, my mom's parents were here before, before 1900. Yeah, I mean, that's... So, I mean, that, that, and, and it was... You know, that was before there were restrictions placed on Jewish immigration to the United States, too, I would imagine. Yes. Um, so what did your uh, parents do? My father was a certified public accountant who started, who turned down his family's business, although he was the oldest son, and who was, um, and set up his own business, accounting business. And my mother, pertinent to this entire interview, um, uh, ended up, long story that I won't tell, but ended up getting a job doing public relations for the Jewish Theological Seminary. Well, that sounds like a good story. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but she worked there. She then ended up, having gotten the job, she ended up working there for um, over 50 years. Uh, And, you know, growing up, how, um, what was your first sort of, you know, you, you, you uh, obviously, you know, and we'll get to it, you, you became involved in public service. How or when did you sort of first kind of feel that call to public service? Um, uh, I would put it differently. I was from, from very early age, as I said before, encouraged to give something back, to know something about politics, to listen to breakfast table discussions about um, election issues, Political issues in the United States. I remember many of those discussions. What's a, what's um, one of the discussions so, that you would cite as having maybe a profound effect on you? Okay, um, I will tell that story. Um, when I was, I guess I was twelve. I'd have to go look, but I think I was twelve. Um, my mother came to the breakfast table one morning, and as I just mentioned, my mother worked full time, and said, um, actually, today uh, you are not to go to school. In, in my house, going to school was a religion of its own, so it was a bit of a surprise. I said, what do you mean I'm not supposed to go to school? She said, I want you to stay home and watch the Army McCarthy hearings on television, and we'll talk about them tonight. So that, that was an early introduction to the critical importance of politics, the way government can function. Um, uh, but also, we were um, we were encouraged to to volunteer to do work. I worked at a um, settlement house and camp uh, in my teen years. Um, so I would say that orientation was there very early. And then I am most fundamentally Mark, a child of the '60s. So I became actively involved in um, civil rights, anti-war, and women's rights work um, through my um, most of my adult years. 
did that focus mostly on uh, New York City issues, or did you, uh, you know, did that? Did you sort of look beyond, you know, uh, no, New York City? That to, was that mostly beyond New York City um, and on national issues, not on international issues. But you know, the the well, except I mean, the war, the Vietnam War, we're talking about. Um, civil rights in the United States. Um, I spent much of this year, 2014, remembering key things that happened exactly 50 years ago. Um, I knew um, one of the civil rights workers who died, who was murdered in Mississippi. So these sure, all I had like. I imagine. No, I knew Andy Goodman. Very Goodman, well. Goodman. Yeah. Um, How did so, you know him? So that, uh, he went to his school with my sister. And. Um, um, uh, I have a younger sister, and he was in her class in high school. So, and I and his parents parents knew my parents on the west side. So, anyway, that was a, a gestalt or a setting that sort of shaped the things I believed in and cared about. I took that framework, I guess that's the right word, um, into social work first. I'm a um, certified social worker. And I worked um, doing both casework and organizing and social change. Then I got involved with social change activities on the West Side in the um, well, late let's, let's 60s. Go back. What, what compelled you to get? So you got like a, a master's in social work, I would presume. Yeah. Where what what compelled you uh, to to go that route? So that's, that's like a very individual level way to affect social change, as opposed to you know, a broader, um, you know, way to, you know, affect public policy, right? What, what made That's you want, probably, to, want to do that, that sort of individual level work? Um, well, now you're, now you're going way beyond my understanding of myself. <laughs> um, I think that's a very good question. I actually think the answer is that um, at that point, we're talking pretty early now, um, 1962, um, that seemed like the way in which people went to work to make change. We didn't have a room, a world full of, especially women, but we didn't have a world full of lots of routes to go work on large-scale policy change. So it, I thought, okay, here's a way to make change. And then I think your question is very important. It is very much to the point because once I got into social work school, I began to understand that whether it was doing community organizing, which is a field within social work, or moving out into the political universe, which is what I eventually did, there were broader ways to work on social change. Uh, and what, uh, so, so you're working in, in social work in, in the 1960s in New York, and what, how did you make that transition then to like the, what you described as a broader way to affect social change? Um, um, I learned from some of the social work I did that clearly laws needed to be changed, policies needed to be changed. I learned that within the context of some of the social work that I was doing, but I also learned it because I was um, an activist in the 60s, you know, demonstrating on some of these issues, looking to lawmakers, and eventually began to think about how do you influence these things yourself. So my actual first move into what you would call more direct politics was working on the west side of Manhattan to improve education, working with a group of parents who were setting up what would today be called a charter school to challenge um, uh, the school system. And then from that, 
accepting an invitation to run for the local school board, and then from that deciding to go into New York City politics. Uh, and what was your first uh, campaign for school board like? What do you? What do you? Uh, what year? What year are we talking about? I guess first. Ran for school board in 1975, and, and it was a regular campaign in an in an election which, um, sorry to say, like many elections, nobody turns out for. So it took a relatively small amount of organizing by the parents late to actually get elected. I got some experience in politics, and just the more experience and work I had in politics, the more I liked it, and the more interested I was in doing it more full-time. What were some of, like, did you have a specific plank that you're running on as a school board uh, candidate? um, Well, I wouldn't say it was very specific, Mark. It was drastic improvements to education, and it was to um, uh, engage more parents and had the school system be willing to engage more parents in thinking about their children's education. And it was to be sure or to see if we could get take steps to get the local school district to do a better job of actually integrating schools that had mixed populations but tended to track them so that they were not integrated classrooms. Oh, so so there was like a way of racially segregating classes within schools, even though the schools itself were formally integrated. That's a fair description. You're now. Um, I think you've now spent long enough on my faraway past. I want to talk about the work I'm doing now. Let's do it. Well, we'll but get yes, there. This that is, is true. this is all this is all okay. fun. It all leads into the grand. Okay. Uh, you know, it all I think feeds into the making of Ruth Messenger. Uh, as uh, AWJS uh, president and CEO. Um, okay, okay, so we'll, we'll move up the timeline, but that, that's, that, is, that is fascinating and, and interesting. Um, I loved it. And I think, you know, and, and to be honest, I think most of my audience are people who are probably in their, like, early careers and so find this part of, uh, you know, my interview interesting. Uh, at least that's the feedback Good. I hear. Um, so, uh, but, yeah, no, let, let's, let's keep track of the timeline. So... How long did you serve on the school board? Served on the school board for two years and then got interested in running for local office. And um, after a few fits and starts, I ended up running a race to represent the west side of Manhattan in the city council in 1977. Served 12 years on the city council and eight years as Manhattan borough president. And then in 1997, I ran a... um, Losing campaign for mayor. Uh, well, can I ask about the, uh, as Manhattan Borough President, uh, this was in like the Dinkins era, I would imagine? Dinkins and Giuliani, yes. Dinkins and, and Giuliani. Um, as like a uh, municipal uh, official, to what extent did your work uh, have you know, international implications. I would imagine, you know, you're, you're the uh, Manhattan Borough president. Manhattan is the seat of the UN. It's, you know, the you know, most important borough of the most important city in the world that, that you know, you might think globally about certain issues. Um, to what extent did, did like, global consciousness uh, uh, influence would, the kind of public policy decisions I would say you're there making? Was, I would say there was some global consciousness, but I promise you the issues of... Um, presiding over Manhattan, working with small neighborhood organizations, themselves trying to make social change, working to create a 
um, uh, running path around the borough of Manhattan, which is largely in place. Um, they were uh, working on local budgets, uh, occasionally disagreeing with mayors. There was a lot to do. It is true that, that New York City is a city, people sometimes joke here that New York City is the only city with its own foreign policy. And um, so some international issues do, did come to attention. Actually, the part that was most interesting to me was the, was the opportunity to work with hugely um, diverse, uh, a huge diversity of constituents, many of whom were first generation um, in the United, not just in Manhattan, but in the United States, and who came from uh, every place from South Asia to um, India to um, all of Central and some of South America. So I learned lots about other parts of the world from my own constituents. Uh, and uh, that's, it's funny that you said uh, New York's the only city with its own foreign policy. I hadn't heard that, that uh, quip before, but that's, that's uh, an, in an interesting formulation. How did that manifest itself while you were in the, the city council? I think just occasionally being thinking through issues of how the city um, handled um, immigration questions, opening up job opportunities, working with communities that really had no, were mostly first-generation communities and didn't have much understanding of um, how to actually establish themselves and establish local services and get public money for some of those services. So I did a lot of that work, you know, helping a group in the Korean community apply for funding for a Korean family services organization, um, working, I mean, all kinds of different things that came up, but it was mostly just to be clear again, was working with those communities here, which is something that I found really both exciting and challenging, as opposed to working on international issues. My switch from um, New York City government to American Jewish World Service to AJWS was a great opportunity to take a lot of what I'd learned, a lot of what I cared about, and learn more about the international scene and work on these issues. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. Uh, and so you uh, ran ag uh, against Giuliani, correct? Uh, I did. Lost, you were the, the Democratic nominee, um, lost uh, that election. And then how soon after uh, the election did you uh, gravitate to American Jewish World Service? Well, basically, after I lost the election in... Um, 1997, and my term would be up at the beginning of 1998, was the end of 20 years in government, and I was looking for something different to do. I had initially imagined I would work on some city policy issues for city-based not-for-profit, but this job came to my attention um, about six months after I left government office, and I just thought it was a fascinating opportunity to take some of the commitment that I had to social justice and learn about and then apply it on a much larger stage. So in uh, 1998, what were sort of the big issues that uh, American Jewish World Service was working on? I would imagine this was, you know, right as the U.S. was about to launch, a, or NATO was about to launch a bombing campaign in Kosovo, um, we're, we're I'm just trying to track historically what were right. probably the issues so, that you were working on. We were, we were, we were buying, first of all, in 1998, we were a $2.8 million organization. We're now a much larger organization, I'm very happy and proud to say. But 
even now, and certainly then, our focus was not on any of the international issues that you, you know, can remember. It was on finding good grassroots groups that were, had their own vision of justice, that were making social change, usually that were doing some of this work already, but needed some combination of funding and, and um, technical assistance. And so that's what we were doing. And we, we, we grew the country, started one of our earliest grantees, was an organization that was fighting for uh, greater democracy and um, higher degree of collaboration among, in El Salvador among groups that had been on opposite sides of the political strife in that country and helping farmers learn how to farm better and learn how to grow crops that they could actually take to market. Um, uh, um, so it was... We're, we are focused primarily on issues in communities as opposed to international issues with a few exceptions. So we then did organize around um, the Darfur genocide and mobilize lots of individual constituents, lots of Jewish organizations, and lots of other organizations to be a very loud faith-based and human rights voice putting pressure on the U.S. government to do everything it could to stop an ongoing genocide. But those and policy issues, we, we, pick, we pick selectively because of limited capacity and because we want to be effective. Uh, and, you know, on, on the Darfur issue, because that's, I mean, that's when uh, your work became, you know, most apparent to me. I, I was reporting on uh, the issue at the time. Uh, like, what was your first uh, recollection of the uh, Darfur genocide, of, of learning about the Darfur genocide? Did it come through, like, a Nicholas Kristof uh, op-ed, I, I would imagine? Or how, how did you first hear about it? You must be reading my mind. Yes, it came from Nick Kristof, who um, made it his business to start writing about Darfur every week or so until there was a larger public response. So that's where I learned about it, and we decided at AJWS that this was a pretty obvious issue for us to pay attention to, learn about, and generate both public interest on and advocacy on, and that's, that was really the, the biggest... I think we had spoken out on one or two other issues of... U.S. funding and U.S. policy. We had been part of an interfaith coalition uh, for debt forgiveness, but I think Darfur was, you're correct, was the first big place that we stepped in, and we were very central to organizing a public demonstration in Washington against the Darfur genocide in April of 2006. I, 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 was, I was there. Um, yeah. And... You know, one thing that, that strikes me about, you know, just about that era, um, it, it's, you know, not that long ago, but long enough ago to call it an era because it was the, the Bush administration, um, you know, it was basically that despite these advocacy efforts, the Darfur genocide happened, right? And, and it concluded, uh, and you know, basically, like, the bad guys won, like, the, the Darfur genocide, uh, you know, it, it happened and there hasn't been much punishment for it, and all the while, um, there's now, you know, renewed conflagration in South Sudan. I guess looking back, how would you judge your advocacy efforts? And, I mean, yes, consciousness was raised about the genocide in Darfur, but not much happened to stop it. Or do you think that's a fair I formulation? Actually, um, yes and no. 
I, I think it's fair that not nearly enough happened to stop it. Um, Bashir is still the president of Sudan and still uh, creating huge problems for Darfur refugees and creating huge problems in ongoing strife, with, strife between Sudan and the new government of South Sudan. That said, I'm absolutely confident that the demonstrations, not just our work, but the work of many activists, made speaking to the behavior of the Sudan government a higher level priority in the Obama administration than it would have been otherwise. And I think the constant attention to this issue in the administration um, means that what happened was much less worse than it might have been. So, you know, if so you're not able to stop... That's not, that's not, that's not the world's... You know, that's not the world's best victory. Passing the International Violence Against Women Act, actually mobilizing funds, which is what we're doing right now, to address the spread of the Ebola virus in Liberia, those are things also which probably won't be successful in totally turning the situation around 180 degrees, stopping the pro all of the problems of the world. But these are areas in which we are proud to say that we're making progress and contributing to social change. So just sort of uh, looking back, so, so at the start of the interview, you, you sort of uh, described how you do advocacy work and grant-making work. Uh, for, um, looking back from when you started in 1998 to today, how has the advocacy environment changed, uh, would you say? Oh, I think that's a great question. I guess I'm going to look at it a little bit from my point of view, which is I feel we have been able to mobilize ever larger numbers of Jews of all ages all over the United States to pay attention to some of these global issues, to think about our work as a key expression of Jewish values, to be concerned about anything from um, Ebola to the earthquake in Haiti to the rights of women in India. Um, so I see a, a larger and larger interest in advocacy for global social justice, both in the Jewish community and in many of the other communities with whom we interact in Washington. That said, you know, I think said this before, but the climate in Congress is not great right now. There is kind of a much less bipartisan um, uh, collaboration than there has been at other times in my political life, um, and it's hard to move legislative issues. By the way, since you asked about Darfur, Darfur, and I know that members of Congress commented on this and liked it, Darfur was an incredibly um, bipartisan issue in which there were Republicans, very active vocal Republicans working alongside very active vocal Democrats to put pressure on the White House. And not only was that... Um, that accounted for some of our success in keeping this high on the State Department and the White House agenda. Um, so you said something interesting. You, you said that sort of mobilizing the American Jewish community is, is part of your work. Um, how uh, do does like the political situation in Israel complicate that work? Um, you know, there are divisions within families, within generations in, in the American uh, Jewish community about how best to approach Israel, about, you know, the right level of criticism uh, to level against the Netanyahu government, or, you know, then there's also the, the BDS movement on, on one end of the spectrum. How do you sort of, it seems like a, it's a pretty perilous 
uh, thicket to navigate. Um, how do you, um, how does, how does like, the political situation in Israel affect your work? Uh, we don't work at all on Israel and the Middle East. We don't work there, and we don't um, take positions on any of those issues. There are, as you well know, um, a wealth of organizations from virtually every point in the spectrum that are concerned about these issues, that are mobilizing in and with the Jewish community, that are speaking up uh, more broadly. We leave that work to them because we are the Jewish organization that focuses in on the immense problems of poverty, oppression, hunger, and disease in 19 countries in the developing world. So there's really like no way in which you think that political situation in Israel affects your ability to mobilize American Jews towards specific causes? I think people are quite capable, as I've discovered in my personal and political life, of caring about three or four or five different things at once. Um, I'm sure. I know for a fact that many of our supporters are engaged in many other local and international issues and many other issues in the Jewish community. We work with them on the area where we have expertise. Uh, and so uh, going forward, what's, what do you see uh, on the horizon for the American Jewish World Service, what, or, and, or for you personally? Um, what, uh, what are some of your you know, priorities of, say, the next 20 years? I know you, you, the uh, Violence Against Women Act, the International Violence Against Women Act is one of your near-term priorities, but longer term, what are, you, what are you looking for? Well, I want to see this organization both continue to grow um, and stabilize so that we can not only do the work we do, but continue to monitor and evaluate that work and be a force for moving the needle on human rights um, in many of the countries where we work at the same time as we move the needle um, on some of these issues in Washington. So yes, I want to pass the International Violence Against Women Act, but I also want to support those organizations in India that are um, fighting um, against forced early marriage uh, even though in India it's already against the law, the law is not recognized and enforced. But many of our grassroots partners have strategies for trying to protect the lives of girls who are otherwise forced into marriage, and we will work with them both at the direct service level, but equally importantly, if we, if we thrive as an organization and we stay over time, we will be able to work with them as they um, make political change in their own countries. So I'm looking forward to the, the growth in our work, the sophistication of our work, the strength of this organization, um, and to having an uh, ever larger impact in Washington. So, you know, it's long-term and short-term. Short-term right now, as I said, the community has responded spectacularly with contributing additional funds to us to deal with the spread of Ebola, which I'd like to say we are sort of right out there on the edge helping groups deal with that crisis, and also urging the U.S. government to pay more attention to it. But, but no, long-term is clearly to continue to grow work that I think we, we at American Jewish World Service have a right to be very proud of. Thank you all for listening. That was fun, and we'll see you next time. Bye.